everybody, and welcome back to the Zach Evans Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we are on episode number 38 of this podcast, and thank you so much for everybody who has been listening. I'm excited about this episode because of what I learned in preparation for this. We're going to talk a little bit about the history of Jewish discipleship and basically why Jesus had disciples at all. Um, how did he become a rabbi, a formal rabbi? Was he recognized by others as a rabbi, and if so, to what degree? And what does that mean for us? Because if we're disciples of Christ, obviously we are not following him around physically as his disciples did, but there's a lot of insight that we can glean from studying discipleship, like first century Jewish discipleship, to understand the way that Jesus thought of it, the way that he conducted it, and it has actually huge implications for us today. And, you know, there's a lot of things that we read in Scripture, and on their face, I would say that we understand them, but when we dig a little deeper, we understand there's this whole context, this whole culture that subsumes the narrative, especially in things like the Gospels, that is present, and sometimes we miss it. Because, I mean, unless you grew up in the first century, you might not understand everything that's implicit in the text. But when you start digging down into the text and getting familiar with the culture itself, uh, you can learn some really interesting things, including what did it mean to be a disciple in Jesus' day? How did you become one? What were the requirements? How did the Jews even come up with this concept of discipleship? Because Jesus didn't invent it. There's actually a process, a long historical process that took place, I believe guided by God, and of course influenced by man to some degree where people took it too far or not far enough, and it became too formal, and then maybe in some cases not formal enough. But regardless, it meant something in the Jewish mind to be a disciple. If we can understand what Jewish discipleship was, I think it gives us a better understanding of what Christian discipleship is in the 21st century. So I hope this will be interesting to you, and we'll jump in. As always, please make sure that you're following the podcast. Leave us a review, five stars, all that good stuff. Connect with us on social media. And so we'll jump into this episode number 38, The Privilege of Discipleship. Matthew 4 and verse number 18. Bible says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And I want you to notice verse 20. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James, a son of Zebedee, and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. Verse 20 and verse 22 are very similar in language. It says of Peter and Andrew, they straightway left their nets and followed him. And then verse 22, about James and John, they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. Now, I've preached this text before, and I think one of the most common explanations of this text, or ways of kind of giving us an admonition from it, is the idea that this was a great sacrifice on the part of Peter and Andrew, James, and John. 
that they're fishermen, they're businessmen, they're entrepreneurs. Um, in the case of James and John, they're in the family business. Their dad's a fisherman, and it's a big fishing area. So, you know, they're probably not rich, but they're doing pretty well. And then this rabbi comes along and says, hey, why don't you follow me? And they give up everything and follow him. And we cloak that in terms of sacrifice. And I think one of the reasons that we do that is because we're reading this with a little bit of a Western American capitalist mind. And when we look at it, we say, wow, for a businessman to give up his business to become a disciple, what a sacrifice. That had to be really tough. That had to be so hard for them to make that decision. Now, pretty much everyone interprets it this way. I have interpreted it this way and taught it that way. I have changed my mind. And I'm going to make the exact opposite case this morning. I do not believe that is the way that they would have seen this choice. They did not hold on to those nets with white knuckles saying, oh, I don't know what to do. This is such a tough choice. I mean, we're going to lose a lot of money. And I mean, I'm, I'm a prestigious businessman. I've got a booming fishing business. No, the Bible says immediately and straightway they left. Okay, question. If that's the case, if really it was a absolutely we'll go, why is that? We imagine it as being a huge sacrifice, a difficult decision. What if they basically threw down their nets and said, 100% I'm not missing out on that? And I think that's more so what it was. And I think essentially what happened here is that the attraction of being a disciple of Jesus was greater than the fishing net. That's essentially what's happening. And I want to explain what I mean by that. There's a historical case that I'm going to make for why that's true. And I want to speak on the subject, the privilege of discipleship. So, you know, we often read a passage like this and we just kind of take it at face value. Jesus is a teacher. Teachers need disciples. Jesus is out recruiting disciples. I mean, it's pretty cut and dry. He's walking around saying, follow me. And so here's what we do. We assume that that's what all rabbis did. All teachers went around to potential students and said, hey, follow me. And the student then makes a decision. Well, I can or I can't. Um, but that's actually not true at all. In fact, the opposite is true. And when we start to understand that there's an entire philosophy, heritage, and even an infrastructure around discipleship that Jesus, the person, did not invent that pre-existed, that was already existent as he began his ministry. And for the most part, Jesus simply followed the precedent already set of what the Jewish people said discipleship was. It changes the way that we view passages like this. My point is that Jesus did not create this system of discipleship. Jesus did not invent the system where people followed around a teacher and a preacher all throughout the place and they did good works and they learned from their teacher. Jesus did not invent that. We see John the Baptist had disciples. Andrew, in fact, was already a disciple of John the Baptist. He had followed him. There were a ton of other prestigious rabbis who had disciples. And the structure that existed, Jesus did not invent or create. However, when we understand how he, in what ways he participated in it, and then in what ways he changed it, because he did, in what ways he departed from precedent, it's actually really, really enlightening. And I think one of the things that, again, we have to realize is when we're reading the Bible, specifically 
books that have an innate historical context uh, that are, I would say, embedded in a culture that we're not really that familiar with. It would serve us well to begin engaging with that culture, culture and get a good understanding of what exactly is going on in these people's lives. Because again, these are real people in a real place at a real time, a real culture, and the decisions that they're making aren't just like flippant decisions, like, like an author who just decided that the wind was blowing through the trees in a certain scene. Like that's not, that's not what's happening. It's far more objective than that. So I think what we find here when we start to interact with this and say, okay, how would the Jewish mind have understood discipleship and what relationship did Jesus' ministry have with the pre-existing culture of discipleship, we begin to realize that this interaction here is nestled in a history and a legacy of discipleship that spans generations. And that's what's very interesting. So in other words, to understand what it meant to Peter and Andrew and James and John when Jesus called them on the Sea of Galilee to be a disciple, and by extension for us to fully understand what it means to follow him today, I should understand in part the history of Jewish discipleship. And again, here's what you got to understand. Like, there's different ways to interpret a verse. You can interpret a verse and you can say, you know, bless God, they straightway left their nets and they followed him. And you can stay right there on the top, on the, you know, on the surface and say, I mean, we need to leave some things, amen. There's things that we need to leave. It's like, well, okay, I get you. I'm totally with you, totally understand. And I, I'm, I'm with that. I'm totally with that. But what I'm saying is that we can still make that conclusion. But my question is, why are they so willing to cast down the net when we would really struggle and do struggle and are currently, as we speak, struggling to do what they're doing? They're not superhuman. <laughs> their decision is informed by the culture of discipleship in their day. And their understanding of what discipleship was and how it compared to what they were currently doing made this an easy decision. We view it as a hard one. It was not. It was an easy decision because they understood what discipleship was. We don't. <laughs> we don't understand what discipleship is. So, um, I want to give you a kind of an overview of how the Jewish people went from basically no formal discipleship to formal discipleship. How did this thing kind of originate and where did it come from? So if we go back in the Old Testament, the word disciple, if you look it up, is only found one time in the Old Testament. And I believe that's in Isaiah. But the roots of Jewish discipleship as it was in Jesus' day, the the I would say the precedent and the idea that informs the Jewish discipleship of Jesus' day goes all the way back to the Old Testament and is very prominent. For example, we find examples all throughout the Old Testament of the relationship between a teacher and a student or a master and his disciples. There's a scholar named Michael Wilkins. In fact, um, what gave me a lot of this information was a really awesome article that I read out of a theological journal um, I had a completely different idea for this sermon in this text. I was studying it in a completely different way. And then I kind of got off on this tangent of learning about Jewish discipleship, and it just blew my mind. So a lot of these scholars are, are from that article. But the scholar Michael Wilkins gives us some examples of Old Testament masters and teachers and uh, students and so on. He gives examples like Samuel's prophets, Elijah and Elisha, which is the most prominent example, and then Elisha and the sons of the prophets, Jeremiah and Baruch, Ezra and the scribes, just to name a few. He says each of these institutions 
was involved in the process of the communication of the revelation of God. That's prophecy, law, wisdom, right? That's the primary function of this relationship. And the suggested intimacy of the relationship indicates mutual support of the master and disciple in the task of revealing the word of God to the nation. So that's how he would define kind of the Old Testament master, uh, master, what's the word? Master, disciple, student, teacher relationship is what's happening. Well, they're partnering together to communicate the revelation of God to the people. And one of the things that informs that is their intimacy one with another. And they always have that, which is really interesting. In fact, what's cool is we can actually observe how the concept of discipleship changed over the course of the Old Testament, which is really cool. And um, there's a scholar named Aaron Dembski who shows this development in three different stages. The first stage is in the very early beginning of the nation. Education was very decentralized and took place primarily within the home. And that just makes sense. And primarily that was for practical reasons, right? There's no overarching structure of education that existed. And he says this fits best with what he calls a semi-nomadic people. So they didn't have a fixed place and a fixed government. So they had kind of the, the self-government that we see after God puts them into the promised land of, hey, you're governed by the law. And it was very loose. And then what happens? Well, then they start doing right what every man does that, which is right in his own eyes, and things begin to fall apart. And eventually what happens? They start to call out for a king. They want a formal government. So one of the things that does is it changes their education. Just from a practical perspective, we look at the history of Israel. In the beginning, discipleship would have been very decentralized within the home, practically speaking. It would have been fathers teaching their sons and mothers teaching their daughters and so on. Remember in Deuteronomy where it says, teach your son when you're in the way, when you're walking here and walking there. Teach him the law. That was education in those semi-nomadic days. But after they kind of get out of that and they want a centralized government, what's going to happen? That's going to change the nature of education. So specifically under David, David apparently invested in this structure of education to some degree, and the priests became more responsible for the people's education. All right, but then in the third stage, this is uh, the, the Hellenist period when the Jews were expelled and placed under Babylonian captivity, and after that, when the world's under Greek influence, that whole kind of period. That is when we see men like Ezra, the scribe, placed as central figures of Jewish education and discipleship. And then what happens under Ezra, apparently, Dembski points this out, is that he was instrumental in establishing Torah, right, as the basis of individual and community life, is what he says. So we see that gradation. So it goes from decentralized to centralized. It goes from in the home to a part of the government, we might say. And you see the same exact thing in any developing country, right? So it's actually a very, we're familiar with this process. America is going through the same exact process. Okay, so what's interesting, he really emphasizes, Dembski does, the importance of Ezra as far as how the Jews thought about discipleship. He lifts up and says the, the Jews would have exalted Ezra in a similar fashion to Moses. He's almost a mosaic type figure, which is, that's a huge statement. It's a massive statement. But specifically, he's like the Moses of education, we might say. He's a leading figure in how the Jews thought about education. Now, when we look at what Ezra did, 
It's pretty amazing. He rekindled the reading and interpretation of the law of God in Israel. That's what he did. And remember when they built the wall, and Nehemiah, Ezra comes out, and he reads the law, and by the way, he gives the sense. He doesn't just stand there and read endlessly for hours. He reads and then gives the interpretation. They explain what the text meant to the people, and then underneath that, Ezra scribes did the same thing. So then, and by the way, the Bible applauds this. The Bible commends this as what they were supposed to be doing. And that moment really cemented Ezra as the foremost figure in Jewish education at the time. Now, what's interesting is Ezra 7.10 says that Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of God, that's number one, and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Okay, so the Jews took Ezra as an example of what a master should look like relative to his disciples. He has three obligations. Study the law. Study the law. Two, do it. Three, teach others. That's it. Study, do, teach in that order. In that order. So that's what Ezra did. Ezra became a pattern for religious leaders in that they are called to study, do, and teach. Okay, so the first figure in the Old Testament that informed the Jewish conception of discipleship is Ezra, and he's on the teaching side. Remember, there's two things that a prophet does. He teaches the revelation of God, gives the revelation, but then two, he models something to his student. There's an intimacy of relationship between them that involves training and a passing on to the next generation. And where the Jews got that idea from was Elijah and Elisha. So Elijah and Elisha had an an interesting relationship and a prolific ministry, but specifically, if you look at their story, it's not about prophecy. Elijah was a prophet, but we don't have the book of Elijah. We We have the book of Isaiah and the book of Jeremiah. We have no miracles recorded being done by Isaiah or Jeremiah. Elijah's ministry was different in the fact that it was a practical ministry, a, we might say, a, uh, a miracle-based ministry, not necessarily a prophetic ministry as we think of it. And so he's the other half of the Jewish understanding of discipleship, which is one half is teaching, study, do, and teach, but then the other half is performing the works of God and modeling the law to your disciples. So there's a scholar named Ephraim Goldstein, and he points out that a key aspect of their relationship, that's Elijah and Elisha, was Elijah's constant availability. So what we see is that Elijah and Elisha were always together all of the time. And so the Jews were like, okay, well, that's what the relationship between a master and his disciples should be like. They should be together all the time. They should travel together. They should eat together. They should work together. They should be rarely apart. And the point that I'm making is that although Ezra's ministry was primarily academic, in a sense, Elisha's discipleship with Elijah wasn't just about academic learning, but specifically about molding to the character of his master. Okay, that's really important for us to understand, is that, yes, under Ezra, there's an academic aspect to discipleship. There are things to study, there's things to do, and there's things to teach. But the other half of discipleship is that we're supposed to follow Christ, we might say, the way that Elisha followed Elijah. I want a double portion of your spirit. Where you go, I go. I'm not leaving you. I'll do all the things that you do. Same exact thing. And the Jews would have said, okay, that's the other half. So really what's happening here, 
is that the Jewish discipleship in Jesus' day was essentially the combination of the spirit of Ezra and the spirit of Elijah. That's essentially what it was. Do, study, teach. Go about doing good, being constantly available to your disciples through relationship to model rightness before them and to eventually pass down the mantle to them. That's Jewish discipleship. That's how they understood it. The article provides this quote. It says, we can say that availability, being constantly together, created relationship, which then enabled suitable training and the transfer of leadership. It's fantastic. This is why, by the way, that leaders in ministry, or we can say this with our children, for example, is one of the important things about raising up the next generation, transferring that leadership, is constant availability. We have to be around. I I made a joke one time. My wife did not like it. I said, listen, I said, a dad's job essentially is just to be around. Because people who didn't have a good relationship with their dad say, my dad was never around. That's what they say. They just go, what was your relationship with your dad like? Well, he was never around. So my job as a dad is just to be around. And if I'm around, my kids go, my dad, he was around. (laughs) He was around. Now, that's not all it's about, but there's actually something to that idea of being constantly available. I've seen this in our ministry. So one of the things that I have done is I have striven, strived? I have been done striving it. I have been done striving goodness to be available to those that follow me and specifically with our young people. So I'm, I'm with them, and less now, but when I taught them, I'm with them all the time. I eat lunch with them. I hang out with them. I just spend time with them. I'm just available. I'm just around. And what that does is uh, it creates relationship, and then that relationship enables training. And they willingly copy your character when you're around and when you're available. And then that allows you eventually to transfer leadership. So we see that in Elijah's example. Okay, so this is actually really cool to understand, is that a rabbi in Jesus' time was to study, do, and teach, that's Ezra, while making himself available through constant relationship with his students as they traveled together. That's the Jewish conception of discipleship. All right, so now that we understand what it looks like, here's a question. How did you become a rabbi? Or how did you become a disciple? Vice versa. So this is really cool. In Jesus' day, all Jewish children attended classes at the synagogue beginning around the ages of five or six. So it depends who you read after. Some say six, some say as early as five. But boys and girls were both taught, although it seems that maybe girls were taught separately uh, from the boys. And the education was specifically, I guess, emphasized, especially higher education, was on boys. And by the way, that's not a politically incorrect thing. It's the practical nature of the time, period, end of story. And anybody who doesn't see that or understand that is just naive. Like, that's life. That's life in that time period. So, and as, as countries get richer and richer and richer, ladies become more and more educated, right? Because the need to do all those other things uh, becomes lesser and lesser. So, this initial class of discipleship was called Bet Sefer, or House of the Book. House of the Book. And this education was comprised of reading, writing, and memorization. Not unlike the elementary system today. Read, can you read, can you write, and repeat after me. 
2 plus 2 is what? It's 4. It's the same thing. Only they were memorizing Torah, obviously. So from age 10 to 12, though, most boys would attend Bet Talmud, or House of Learning, where they would learn how to interpret the Law of Moses, and they would start to venture into other Old Testament books, prophetic and poetic. All right, so then they would do that from age 10 to 12. Then at age 12, what happens? Well, a Jewish boy goes through bar mitzvah and ceremonially becomes a man. And for most kids, that would end his education. That would be it. You would go through the house of the book and through the house of learning, and then you bar mitzvah, ceremonially, you're a man, good job, education's over at 12. That sounds like a pretty good deal. I'm in on that. So about six years of education. However, a select group, and this is in Jesus' day, okay, in Jesus' day specifically, a select group, probably the wealthier and more academically-minded use, would go on to a kind of college equivalent called Bet Midrash, or the House of Study. And a Bible scholar described Bet Midrash this way. He said, after 12 or 13, gifted students joined the Beth Midrash, where, focus, where the focus was understanding and applying Torah and oral tradition to daily life in a more intense way. All right, so listen to this. Study was conducted under a famous rabbi. The student, usually called a Talmud or a disciple, would attach himself to and travel with the rabbi as a part of his education. His goal was to become like his rabbi and learn until he internalized it. This continued until he became a full-fledged rabbi or scribe at the age of 30. Without training at the Bet Midrash, a man could not be recognized as formally educated. Though the first two stages seem to have been affordable and accessible to the average Jewish boy, the third stage seemed to be for boys who were intelligent, talented, and from well-to-do homes. Very interesting. So we have three stages of Jewish discipleship. We have Bet Sefer, Bet Talmud, and Bet Midrash. The first two is kind of like elementary school, middle school. The last one like high school, college, typically reserved for the wealthy or academically talented. All right, so that's the progress, the progression that you'd go through as a student if you wanted to become a rabbi. Now, while you're in the program, you're a disciple to a famous rabbi, and a guy named Thomas Lancaster points out that you had basically four jobs as a disciple. And remember, this would have applied to Jesus' disciples. That's what I'm saying, is Jesus basically ran his ministry the same exact way, all right? Four jobs as a disciple. Number one, memorize your teacher's words. That's your job. Memorize your teacher's words. So what's um, interesting is that compiling the Gospels for Matthew, Mark, and John would have been fairly easy as they had heard Jesus repeat these sayings and teachings dozens of times. We have the idea that Jesus only taught certain things like once. No, he taught the same parables over and over and over and over and over and over again. It's the conversations between the disciples that would have been more nuanced. But the teaching would have been repetitive over and over and over again. And Matthew, Mark, and John's job would have been to memorize the teaching. So one of the things that we say uh, that critics might say about the Gospels, for example, as well. I mean, how do we... How, no, no, no. Why, why don't you just understand Jewish discipleship at the time and understand that disciples, generally speaking, developed a prolific ability to memorize. So they did. And by the way, the Holy Spirit then brought that memorization back to them as they inscribed it. So it's the process of inspiration sometimes we think is too mystical. 
Like Matthew just sat back ignorant, dumb as a stump, and said, okay, Holy Spirit, give it to me. That's not what happened. He memorized Jesus' teachings diligently, and the Holy Spirit, of course, inspired his writings. Okay, so the second job would have been to learn their teachings and interpretations. So not only memorize the teaching, but then to kind of learn their practical methods of how they do life and how they do ministry. A good example of this is when the disciples come to Jesus and they say, teach us to pray as what? John also taught who? His disciples. What does that mean? Rabbi, we're your disciples. So that means that you have a responsibility under the rabbinic tradition to teach us your methods. Remember how John, John taught his disciples his method of prayer. In fact, all rabbis taught their students their personal way of praying. That would have been customary. And so when they went to Jesus to say that, they were just saying, Rabbi, would you do your job? That's it. It wasn't even a spiritual request necessarily. There's a spiritual aspect to it for sure, but it's practical. Can you teach us to pray? Can you teach us to do this? That's his job as the rabbi. John did the same thing. And what I like is that Jesus did not teach them to pray as he prayed, which is what John would have done. So John taught his disciples to pray like John. Jesus did not teach his disciples to pray like him. So in that sense, he departs from the rabbinic tradition and he doesn't pass on his way of praying because guess what? You can't pray like Jesus. (laughs) You ain't him. And so he says, when ye pray, say. That's not what the normal rabbi would have done. The normal rabbi would have said, when I pray, I say this. All right, number three. Third job of a disciple would be to imitate the teacher's actions. To imitate the teacher's actions. In fact, one of the scholars says that discipleship was basically the art of imitation. It's essentially what it was. It's the art of imitation. Elisha imitated Elijah. Joshua imitated Moses. Andrew imitated John the Baptist. The disciples were to imitate Jesus. Number four, and then to raise their own disciples, to become rabbis or teachers themselves. In the case of the disciples, many of them pastors. Okay? So, this is the context of discipleship in which we should understand Jesus' ministry. When Jesus' ministry began, there was a pre-existing method and philosophy of discipleship, and Jesus, generally speaking, didn't depart from that. He just participated with it. All right, so then really cool question that comes out of that is, how did Jesus become a rabbi then? How did Jesus become a rabbi? How much of this process was he involved in? Very cool question. He didn't just walk out of Nazareth you know, having never been to synagogue a day in his life, like he had some type of education, what did that look like? Now, the first thing we have to establish, and we don't have to spend much time thinking about this, is whether or not he was actually recognized as a formal rabbi with authority. And he was. Even his enemies called him rabbi, teacher. So they recognized him as a rabbi within the rabbinic tradition. That's really interesting, which means that comes with authority. Remember the story of when The woman with the issue of blood, she touches his tassels. She touches the tassels on his his, uh, garment. It was a sash that they would wear that a rabbi would wear. It's a typical rabbinic piece of clothing. And she went and touched the tassels, which is also a historical context to touching the tassels of a rabbi, right? So Jesus is even dressed like a typical rabbi. 
very interesting. So that means he had to have some kind of formal education in order to be recognized, even by those who disliked him, as a rabbi. This would also explain one of the reasons why Jesus' ministry began at 30 years of age. We say, well, why didn't he start at 29, 28, 25, 20? He's the son of God. He's a rabbi. He's a rabbi. And he's a rabbi according to the rabbinic tradition. And you become a rabbi at 30. Jesus followed the structure of his day. Think about that. Jesus didn't walk in and say, don't you know who I am? (laughs) I'm the son of God. I'm going to be a teacher. Think about that. That's incredible. Jesus conformed to that. It's incredible. We kick against all of that stuff. We kick against all the governors put on us, all the limits put on us. Jesus followed the limit of his culture that said, you cannot be a formal teacher until you're 30 years of age. Jesus said, okay. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And by the way, that shows his faith. And then what happened? He did more in three and a half years than anybody who ever lived. Like, it's not a time issue, right? It's not a time issue. But Jesus simply followed the rules of being a rabbi. That's incredible. That's one of the reasons why he waited to be 30. Also, there's massive Old Testament precedent for, precedent for your public ministry, even as a Levite, beginning at age 30. Priesthood began at 30. Same thing. But that's amazing to me. All right, so the question is, what exactly did his education consist of? And I believe that we can say that it seems likely that Jesus did not go through all three stages of typical schooling for the average Jewish boy. John 17, excuse me, John 7, 5, the Bible says that his own countrymen critiqued his education. Remember that? They said, how knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Now, does that mean he never went to synagogue? No, we know he's in synagogue. We see him at 12 years old in the temple talking back and forth. By the way, learning according to the typical form of discipleship of the day, which was question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. Watch this, so cool. He's in the temple. The Bible says that he was answering questions and asking questions. The master asks the questions. What do you think about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? There you have Jesus reversing the role of discipleship in the temple. What the what? There's a 12-year-old like, let me disciple you for a second. Something else. It's incredible. Jesus reversed the discipleship in the temple. Okay. So there's a question about his education. He's never had any formal education of a higher degree, it seems. So what that could mean is that it's likely he went through the first two stages, Bet Sefer and Bet Talmud, but that he never went through Bet Midrash. That's probably what it was. He had no high school or collegiate equivalent education. He never went through discipleship under a famous rabbi. So could it be, by the way, because he was known not as like Paul. Paul was known as Gamaliel's disciple. He was a follower of Gamaliel. Jesus was known as the carpenter's son. So if you went through the rabbinic school, guess what that meant? That meant you were primarily known as a student to your master. You were known as Gamaliel's pupil. Jesus was known as a carpenter from Nazareth. Could it be that a single mother couldn't afford to put her gifted son through college? It's essentially what's happening. Is dad's passed away, you've got to take care of mom. And do I think that if things had worked out differently, Jesus would have gone through bit midrash? Of course, we pretend that all of this had to be the way that it did, and maybe it did. But if it didn't, if Joseph had lived, it seems likely that maybe Jesus would have been able to go through bit midrash. I don't know, or maybe he wouldn't have all, at all. 
But the point is that Jesus very likely did not go through that form of education. So, however, you could become a rabbi without going through Bet Midrash. That is true. And essentially what you had to do is you just had to kind of pronounce yourself a rabbi and you either had a following or you didn't, right? So there's a whole structure that basically you could walk out and say, I'm a teacher. Yeah, but nobody's going to follow you. So it's really not a threat to the established tradition, right? So what happens is Jesus begins his public ministry at age 30, having a you know, basic education, and he's preaching, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. And watch this. And he has no disciples. He has zero disciples. Now here's a question. So we know how to be a rabbi. But how do you become a disciple? How did the typical disciple become one in Jesus' day? So disciples would quickly attach themselves to notable rabbis. So they would chase down famous rabbis in the street. Can I follow you? 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 And the rabbi would screen them and then say yes or no. He would accept or reject the disciple. We see this with Jesus, that later on in his ministry, after he had some followers, people would come up and say, sir, I would follow you. Can I follow you? What are they saying? Can I formally be your pupil? Can I be your student? Can I leave everything that I have and come and follow you? And Jesus would screen them. And some would say, well, I mean, let me go do this first. Let me go do that first. And I mean, I I do want to follow you, but Jesus is like, no, no, if you're going to follow me, you've got to leave the nets. You've got to leave the nets. So straightway, leave everything immediately and follow me. But they wouldn't. But that was the typical way of becoming a disciple. You would be like, ah, let's see, who do I want to follow? Ah, Gamaliel. Paul would have approached Gamaliel. Paul would have gone up to Gamaliel and said, sir, um, I would like to apply to be one of your disciples. Okay, tell me about your education. Well, graduated through Midrash, top of my class. Um, I'm sorry, I'm really nervous. And Gamaliel would have said either yes or no. Okay, but in Jesus' ministry, we see the opposite. Jesus begins his public ministry and no one is chasing him down to be his disciple. He's already preaching, he's already teaching, and nobody is running after him in the street saying, can we follow you? Can we follow you? No, they're running past him to guys like Gamaliel. They're running past him. Excuse me, sir. Excuse me, sir. I'm trying to get to my rabbi. And they go to them. They're running past the Son of God to go follow someone else. Jesus has no followers because no one is coming up to Jesus saying, can I follow you? Incredible. So then what does Jesus do? Jesus breaks completely with rabbinic tradition. Instead of standing around kind of be like, well, we'll see what happens if I get any followers. Jesus starts walking down the beach. He's walking down the beach by himself, sees four fishermen and goes, "Uh, you want to follow me and be my disciples? Now we look at that as either like, I mean, typically, like if we didn't know who he was, we'd be like, well, that's kind of desperate. And the rabbis would have viewed that as desperate. You've got to go recruit disciples. <laughs> well, the reason why you have to recruit disciples is because you never went through Bet Midrash, you have no notoriety, you have no connections. I mean, who are you? You're nobody. Okay, watch this. He could have stood outside of Bet Midrash, outside of the house of study, and said, uh, I need some applicants, I'm looking for... No, no, no. He didn't go to the colleges. He didn't go to the high school, as it were. He's walking along the beach, walking up to fishermen going... You want to be one of my disciples? And the most amazing thing is that they said yes. Now we look at that again and we go, like, what a sacrifice. Typical entrepreneurial Americans were like, they left the business and money for a humble monastic life. Like, that's incredible. What a sacrifice. What a difficult decision. Wrong. Wrong. If people chased down rabbis in the street, 
if they chased them down, if that's how coveted discipleship was, that's how badly people wanted to be a disciple, they're all fighting over who's going to get to be a disciple, and every Jewish boy would have loved to go through Bet Midrash. All of their, look, we, we have posters of athletes on our wall. They would have posters of rabbis on their wall. That's how revered rabbis were in the Jewish culture. And Peter would never have been considered. He doesn't have enough money. His parents didn't have money. He's not educated enough. He doesn't have the connections. And in, inwardly, secretly, yeah, he probably would have loved to go through it. But he never would have been considered. And he would have been rejected by every single rabbi on the face of the earth until Jesus came along. And Jesus walked up to him. Whoever would have heard of such a thing? A rabbi walking up to people saying, I'd like for you to follow me. Oh my word. What a privilege. Me? A disciple? Me? A pupil? You're saying, you're saying that like a real disciple. You mean like I get to travel with you? and learn from you, and like the whole thing, the whole kit and caboodle. I get to do that. You understand I have no education. I understand. You understand I didn't graduate Bet Midrash or anything. I get that. You understand I got no money, I have no qualifications, I don't know anybody, I have no connections, no nothing. Yeah, I understand. I want you to be my disciple. (laughs) Let's do it. My point is they would not have held on to the nets. I'm just not so sure because, you know, I love fishing so much. No, they would have thrown those things down and said, absolutely. 100%. Why? Because the Jewish mind understood the privilege of discipleship. They understood that unfortunately, discipleship had become something for the rich and affluent. It was quartered off for the best and the most talented. The straight A students, and not just the straight A students, the straight A students whose parents had money. Those were the disciples. Those were the Pauls of the world who thought they were better than everybody else. And all those little fishermen boys wanted to be those guys and couldn't be those guys until Jesus came along and said, I'm not looking for the upper class. I'm not looking for the valedictorians. I'm looking for some willing people who just want to follow me. Are you interested? And they said, absolutely. Because they understood the privilege of discipleship. But here's the question. But do we? Do we understand that discipleship is a privilege? No, we don't. Because we don't have the Jewish mind. We have the American mind. If Jesus came to us, and he has already come to us and made us the same offer, we hold tight-fisted to our nets, as it were. I'm just not so sure. I just, I mean, I got a business, I have some money. I just, uh, I'm not, not so sure. Why? We don't straightway and immediately leave everything, including our family, to follow the master because we don't view it as a privilege. We view it as something for the lesser thans. Not something of the upper crust. We want what the upper crust has. We want what the upper class has. And what they have isn't discipleship. What they have isn't a rabbinic tradition. What they have are four-acre houses. I don't mean a house on four acres. I mean houses that are four acres big. <laughs> Think about that. We're holding on to our desires, our enterprises, our designs, and yet we do not understand the privilege that lies before us. The master has come running to us. What? We're supposed to be chasing him down. And he's supposed to be filtering through the applicants like, no, 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 maybe. 
Not good enough, not educated enough. I don't know who your parents are. Who is your brother? Do you have a connection? How did you get to me? How do you? No, no, no. I only, I only have the best. Only the best of the best. Yet the Bible says that he has despised those things and chosen the weak things of the world. Things despised, not many noble, not many strong. What a wonderful thing. He has extended the privilege of discipleship to people like me, even to Gentiles. He's extended the privilege of discipleship to people who would never have dared to say, can I follow you? Think of that. The rabbi has sought us out and bid us to follow him. In spite of our lack of qualifications, in spite of our lowly estate, he came to us. Three things quickly, I'll just list them. Number one, discipleship is a privilege. Discipleship is a privilege. The call to be a follower of Jesus, and by that I'm not referring to conversion, but rather a life fully dedicated to Him, is a privilege. A life that says, where you live, I live. Where you go, I go. What you eat, I eat. What you do, I do. What you teach, I believe. What you teach, I practice. Teach me how to pray. Teach me how to live. Teach me how to act. Teach me what's important. Teach me what my priorities actually should be. That kind of life is not grievous and vexating and vain. That's this life under the sun. But the call to discipleship is nothing less than the greatest of all possible privileges. And by the way, if we pity the bright young scholar rushing past Jesus to follow some other rabbi, if we pity him, like, dude, you are missing out. You just ran past the rabbi of all rabbis. How much more pitiful are we who spend our life chasing all these other things and run right past him as well? Number two, discipleship is a promotion. Discipleship is a promotion. We view their decision to accept Jesus' discipleship almost as a demotion. Like, oh, wow, what a sacrifice. They left the fishing business to become a disciple. They would not have viewed it that way. They would say, I'm getting out of this business. You kidding me? I get to be a disciple? I could be a rabbi one day? Are you kidding me? I'm in. Do we view discipleship that way? Generally not, because we pat the heads of those who dare to follow Jesus fully and go, that's nice. That's cute. Good for you. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. That the ministry sometimes it seemed to be reserved for the lesser among us. We describe it in terms of sacrifice as a demotion or a lateral move at best. But in the Jewish mind, this was a promotion of the highest sort. Number three, discipleship is a pleasure. It's a pleasure. One of the aspects of discipleship that we miss is the relationship. That's Elijah and Elisha. He offers us the right hand of fellowship, but ours is clinging so tightly to the net of our own will. But all the pleasures that we seek are in that same right hand. Not ours. Not the right hand of our own strength or our own efforts, but it's in His right hand. There are pleasures forevermore, but we have to leave the nets behind. It's no wonder they left their nets. It just makes sense. I'm thankful that God has sought out not the noble and strong things of the world, but things weak and despised. He condescends to men of low estate and makes them His disciples. What a privilege. Here's the question. What are we holding on to that's keeping us 
from following Him? What is it that we view as such a privilege, such a promotion, such a pleasure, that we won't straightway and immediately cast it down to accept the greatest privilege of our lives? Discipleship is a privilege. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that, give us a five-star review. Make sure that you're following the podcast and make sure to connect with us on social media at Zach Evans Podcast. God bless. Thank you.